team. And as the uh, slide says, <laughs> Children's Church, we're discussing kids for Children's Church. That's ages 4 through 1st grade. And you can go out this north door and follow Ms. Polly Swartz and Hope West. So, so as the children are being dismissed, I want to make this public service announcement to you as your pastor. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. If you are married, take this opportunity to pursue your spouse, to appreciate him or her. Um, you know, life can get busy. And the scripture tells us in, in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18, to rejoice in the wife of your youth. So, so take advantage of that. If you're in a relationship, just pragmatic advice, do something. Do something, lest you be perceived as not being interested or just uh, com completely dispassionate. And for those of you who are single and are not in a relationship, here's what I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart. Do not let a Hallmark holiday degrade you, okay? And your importance and your significance and tell you that you are less than because you are not the two most complete people in the Scripture the Apostle Paul and our Lord Jesus Christ himself were single. So do not let, do, do not let that holiday uh, make you feel badly about who you are. Because it's not true. Well, today we're going to talk about tolerance. Tolerance is something that many in our society are, are calling for. And I'm not talking about iocane powder. Anyone get that? Think Princess Bride. So. But, you know, the irony of, of things is that oftentimes those who are crying out the loudest for tolerance, those they deem intolerant, they have an intolerance for. We see that all the time now in, I guess, what we call cancel culture. Isn't it kind of ironic? But tolerance can be a good thing. It's, it's a good thing for our society. And, uh, I mean, I am grateful for the tolerance here in our society for the freedom of religion. We don't have the state telling us how to worship. I'm grateful for tolerance and freedom of speech. We can express ourselves and, and not be fearful of being you know, jailed or uh, you know, penalized for that. Tolerance is something that you need in relationships, Right? I'm telling you what, when you get into marriage, you find out that you need to have tolerance. With children, you need to have tolerance, because they're not always going to do what you want. And you start out with great ideas at the very beginning, and then, then you're just satisfied that, you, you, okay, just keep your stuff in your room and we'll shut the door. Tolerance is something that we understand in the church. We bear with one another, forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Even the gospel itself says that God has had tolerance with us and has made a way for us to be reconciled to himself. On the other hand, let me say this. Absolute unqualified tolerance of behavior is not a virtue. Okay? We as parents don't allow three-year-olds to go play on a busy street, Right? We as parents don't allow our children to play in a bathtub 
with a plugged-in toaster. We don't say, oh, they're going to learn how somehow. No, no, they won't. So, I mean, it's not an absolute virtue. And there are certain things that are not healthy to tolerate. And while Jesus wants to meet people where they are, to come and follow Him, He does not allow you to stay the same. He doesn't allow you to have another object of faith. He does not allow someone else to be first in your priorities. He says, I need to be. You need to love me more than anyone, anything or anything else. And so here we are back in our series about the seven churches of Asia Minor. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack it open to uh, chapter 2 of, of uh, Revelation. We'll be starting at eight, uh, chapter, verse 18 here. But today we're going to be looking at a church that had a lot on the ball. They had a lot of great things going for them. But, but they were unwisely or undiscerningly tolerant of a person in their midst who was leading people astray from their faith in Christ. Indeed, she was causing them to enter into infidelity against Christ. So Jesus says, I can't tolerate that. You're tolerating it, but I can't tolerate that. And something needs to change here. So let me pray, and then we'll get into God's Word and see what He has for us. So Lord Jesus, we're grateful for Your words to us, to Your church. And even though You were addressing a specific church in a specific time, You're addressing us too here today. So give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. And Lord, where we need to change, give us grace to change. Where we need to receive your grace, let us receive it. But Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to respond to you. And we want to worship you in spirit and in truth, even as we look into your word. So Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. Revelation, chapter 2, 18 through 29. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each according to their deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have, have, uh, hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. The one, the one will rule over with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, 
I will also give that one the morning star. And whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Thyatira, Thyatira, potato, potato, I'm not really sure. But what's interesting about this city is it's 30 miles southeast of Pergamum. It's out in the plains of Asia Minor. And this was probably the least important, least significant, least known, you know, as far as just archaeology and knowledge, what we know about this church. And yet Jesus writes the most to it, interestingly enough. It was really kind of an outpost type of a place for the Seleucid Empire, now ruled by the Romans. And it eventually became a place where manufacturing took place because it was near trade routes. And so you had a lot of guilds come into there, one of which was one of, of uh, the guild of uh, bronze workers. But here's the thing that's significant about mentioning these guilds. All these guilds had a patron god or goddess that they would pay homage to and their festivals. And this was the center of their, of their civic life, even maybe even their social life. So these guilds would hold, you know, festivals to pagan gods. And if you were in that guild, you were expected to be there. You were expected to be a part of that. And if you put your faith in Christ, can you see how this is a conflict? This is a conflict. One other thing you need about Thyatira is that their patron god, protective god, was that of Apollo. Apollo, the sun god, the son of Zeus, a son of God. And the, uh, the thought was actually even the Caesar was a physical manifestation of Apollo. That may just seem like trivia right now, but it will make sense here in a second. They're basically saying that Apollo is the son of God. So what we see at the very outset, is that Jesus reveals himself as the true Son of God who sees all. Let's read it again, verse 18. To the angel of, in the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. As we've seen, as Jesus appears to each church, he appears in a way to demonstrate what he's going to do in that church, how he's going to address that church, how he intends to deal with them. In a city, in a church whose city declares that Apollo is the patron God, he is the son of God, or even that Caesar is the son of God, Jesus says, no, I am the true son of God. And by the way, this is the only place in Revelation that Jesus is addressed as the son of God. But it's also inferring that he himself is God himself. He is one with the Father, as he says in John 10, 30. So he's saying, look, I know you guys live in a society where people are saying that Apollo is the son of God or that Caesar is the son of God, but I am the true son of God. So don't pay attention to that. Pay attention to me. I'm the one who has significance in your life, and I'm the one who makes all the difference in now and all of eternity. And in his appearance, he says he is the one whose eyes are like blazing fire. That does not mean he needed visine. It means that he sees and perceives all that's going on. 
His gaze pierces through anything that's trying to, to hide or mask the truth or reality, especially in his church. He sees everything. Later on in the same passage, he says in verse 23, Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. He also appears as one whose feet are like burnished bronze. Burnished or polished bronze or brass is oftentimes used in military, armor, or equipment. And it certainly does kind of, you know, kind of point to a military glory or smartness. But the, the truth is, Jesus is saying, I'm not dressing just for show. I'm dressing to take care of business. There's something I need to address here, and I am serious. So number two, Jesus recognizes the strengths of his church in Thyatira. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and I know that you are doing more than you did at first. I'll tell you what, I would love to hear that about Berean. Man, I know about your deeds. You are hardworking. I know about your love. That the love of Christ, it just pervades. Those who are in your church, those who are coming into your church, I love your service. How you serve people, how you take care of them in my name. Your perseverance. You have hung in there with your faith, even though it's hard, even though you face opposition at times. And that you're doing more than you did at first. You're not just coasting. You're excelling. You're growing. You're not just mailing it in. Man, great job. And this is a church where you come and you just sense, man, there's something about this church. I feel so welcome. There's something about this church. Things are happening here. Things are going on. I really like this church. And you sense the sincerity. You sense the faith that's going on. You see that grace is flowing like water. And there's a real sense of acceptance toward one another. And this is a real strength of this church. And Jesus commends it. Indeed, we are called to love one another. To extend grace to one another. To extend even tolerance to one another. Be kind. Love one another. Be tenderhearted. Forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's a hallmark of His people. However, in their desire to be accepting, in their desire to be loving, their strength became a weakness. Jesus rebukes the weakness, listen, of the strength of His church. Jesus rebukes the weakness of the strength of His church. Verse 20, He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Again, in their desire to be accepting and to be loving, they become undiscerning, blindly accepting, and tolerant of doctrinal error, tolerating false teaching, immoral, immoral behavior. And that's, that's going to be the truth 
of any of us. Our strengths can be our weaknesses, and our weaknesses can be our strengths. Some of us are really logical, we're really strong-headed, and that's our strength. Sometimes our weaknesses, we're not so soft-hearted. And the reverse is true. You know, some of us are really soft-hearted, but sometimes we're not so strong in the head as far as, okay, what is the truth here? And that's the beauty of Jesus, right? He is full of grace. He's full of truth. He's the perfect combination of both. And I praise God for who our Savior is, and I praise God how He's probably growing each one of us in an area where we need to grow in our weakness and let it become a strength. But Jesus calls this woman, woman who's having this negative, profound negative impact, Jezebel. And I don't know if that means anything to you, but if you've been in First Kings lately, in chapter verse six, uh, chapter sixteen, and there on, you find out that Jezebel's not such a great woman. She is this pagan princess who marries the king of, of Israel, the northern, the northern tribe, and he marries, she marries Ahab. And it is her personal mission to bring Baal worship and Asher worship into the kingdom of Israel. In fact, she's putting to, de- to death the prophets of the Lord. And even when her prophets are put to death by the prophet Elijah, Well, she threatens him. She doesn't care about the truth. She just wants to have that influence. And she also makes arrangements to have a a man named Naboth killed because her husband Ahab wanted his vineyard. She she, ends up dying a pretty ignominious death. But what it's saying, when you're being called Jezebel, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. It means you're treacherous. It means you're leading people astray. And so this woman is what is called Jezebel. And she is in a place like of power and influence in the church. And she calls herself a prophetess. Now, the truth of the matter is, we have categories for that. You know, that God used women to speak prophetically. We find that in the Old Testament, in a, a prophetess named Hulda and Miriam. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, and Acts 21, uh, verse uh, 9, with the Philip the prophet and his daughters who prophesy. But here's the thing. She's saying, I'm speaking for God, but in truth, she's leading people astray. She's leading people astray into sexual morality, into worshiping false gods. And here's probably what it looks like. She was kind of giving permission to believers to enter into the guild festivals. Hey, you can go, and you can, you can partake of the foods that were offered to Apollo or Athena. You know, when things get a little crazy, well, <laughs> that's just what happens. Somehow she's deceived God's people to think that that's okay. And the worst part is this for Jezebel. If she's been given an opportunity to repent, to turn back. Somebody's come to her and said, hey, hey, time out. Remember that letter that came from the church of Jerusalem? If you're looking for that, that's Acts chapter 15, verses 28 through 29. 
Remember that letter that says, hey, we're not going to make you follow the law. We're not going to put anything over you, but we are going to say, hey, don't eat food offered to idols because you're entering into idolatrous worship. And don't go into sexual immorality because that's a sin against the body of Christ. Remember that? And the scripture says she has been given an opportunity to repent, but she was unwilling. She was unwilling. Now here's, here's the truth. If you find your place in a place of power, or prestige, or influence, sometimes that can be a heady brew. It can be an intoxicating thing. You kind of like that power. You kind of like that influence. She's calling herself a prophetess. I speak for God. And yet, it was all about her maintaining that power, maintaining that influence, maintaining, you know, that control. Who is this about? Are you really a prophet? Then it would be about Christ rather than being about you. And here's the question for us, you know, because she was probably a gifted, charismatic personality. Do we allow gifting and personality to take precedent over truth and character? It's easy to do. It's happened in the church a lot lately. But Jesus says, she misleads my servants. Rather than wholehearted faith, they're leading me away. The opposite of obeying me. And it's destructive. If something doesn't happen, I have to do something about it. And so he does. Jesus brings retribution with an aim toward repentance. Jesus brings retribution with an aim towards repentance. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring discipline. And it's going to manifest itself in physical pain and suffering to this woman and her followers. And even some who you know, call themselves her children, her followers. Some of them are going to die even. It's in line with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30, where Jesus says, if anyone, where Paul says, hey, anyone who eats and drinks the you know, blood and body of Christ in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the blood. So, and he goes, some of you are weak, sick, and some of you have even died. That is the discipline of the Lord coming on his people for trampling under their feet the blood of Christ. For not taking that seriously. The same thing is happening here. I'm going to bring this upon you unless you repent. Unless you stop walking in this rebellion. Unless you stop walking in this false teaching. Unless you stop walking in unfaithfulness. And here's what I want you to see here. Jesus' purposes are not all punitive. He's not just trying to give the smack down to get even. He really wants them 
He wants to bring discipline so they will repent. And sometimes we need discipline for God to get our attention. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says this, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Those who allow that discipline to do its work, to send its message. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, says this, But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience. But he shouts in our pain. It It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, I'm not telling you that all physical pain in life is God's discipline or his punishment. That's not what I'm saying. But it is a fair question. If we're experiencing that, especially as believers, God, what are you trying to tell me? What do you want to say to me? Am I actually out of sorts with you? Am I actually in rebellion against you? You're trying to get my attention. His discipline is so that we'll repent, not just to be punitive. Jesus' discipline of his church also serves as an example to the rest of the church. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will pay each according to your deeds. Again, there's no hiding from Jesus. He sees You can hide it from the pastor, you can hide it from the church, but you can't hide it from Jesus. And his rebuke is not a vain threat. He will repay according to our deeds, which actually might be betraying what we say is our faith in Christ. Matthew 16, verse 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what they have done. You're continuing in a life of sexual immorality? Of pagan worship? Food offered to idols? I don't, I question your faith. I question your faith in me, Jesus says. Do you really believe me? Then you would take my word seriously. And I'm being very serious right now is what Jesus is saying. But there's good news. Not everyone was you know, buying into what this woman was peddling. And Jesus requires that those who are not deceived not regress in their faith. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to those who do not hold to her teaching, who have not learned uh, Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, except to hold on to what you have until I come. Here's the point. Doctrine matters. Doctrine or teaching matters. And bad doctrine 
leads to bad behavior or wrong behavior. When, when Jesus says Satan's so-called deep secrets, it's a sarcastic quip of her claim to know and teach the deep things of God. No, they're not. They're the deep things of Satan. Let's call a spade a spade here. What specifically did she teach? We don't know exactly. But let me throw up an example or a straw man that, that might help to see how people can be deceived. Remember, this is Asia Minor. And down southeast, there's a place called Colossae. A place that was invaded by a, a group of false believers called the Gnostics. Gnostics means knowledge. They were people who were the secret knowledge of things. Enlightenment, if you will. So let's just say this spread to Thyatira. And it would look something like this. You know, the physical body, it really doesn't matter. It's just a shell. What really matters is your soul, your inner person, your spirit. The physical, it's just, it's just a shell. It's passing away. And that's, you know, it's, it's really attractive because we as Christians believe this, right? That this world is passing away. And that we're supposed to be living for eternity, not just this world. So you see how it's easy to kind of buy into this? And so, you know, she'd, she'd kind of continue on. Since the physical really doesn't matter, and your body is physical, well, then it really doesn't matter what you do with your body. You see how that so easily slips in there? Real easy to be deceived. But what does God's Word say? <laughs> when God made the world, He said, it's good. The whole physical thing, it's good. And yes, it is fallen. Yes, it is tainted by sin. But He's come to redeem it. He's come to redeem us. And believers, you know what He said of you? He says, you are the, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. My spirit dwells within you. And because of that, then honor God with your bodies. Honor Christ with your bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And you know what? I understand that your body's decaying. I understand that you're, you're you know, getting older. I'm getting older. We're not old gray Mary, what she used to be kind of a thing, Right? But you know what? He's going to come and redeem our fallen bodies. He's going to transform it and make it like His glorious body. I have a plan for the physical. And so it matters what you do with your physical body. The, tr the lie, it doesn't matter. The truth is, it does matter. Because I'm redeeming that. I have a plan. In fact, I'm bringing a whole new physical Jerusalem to this world. A new Jerusalem. But here's the question. If we were met with that kind of false teaching, would we know enough from God's Word to refute it? That's why we call ourselves Bereans, right? Because like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, we want to receive a message with eagerness. 
But we also want to look and make sure that these things are so. And if it's not so, then we want to reject that. We don't want to be tolerant of that. Doctrine matters. It matters how we live. And those who had rejected her false teaching are called to hold on to the truth of the word, of the gospel, until he comes. Until he comes. Last of all, Jesus rewards those who hold on with his authority to reign. Verse 26. To the one who is victorious, that is the one who holds on, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, history is going somewhere. It's not going to be this endless cycle. And when he finally comes back, every person, tribe, tongue, and nation will be subject to him. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. And it is his promise to give his authority to his people to rule over the nations. And so it prompts this with Jesus' authority given to his people. As he, uh, Jesus quotes from um, Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that he will rule or shepherd the nations with an iron rod. And for those who won't submit, he will dash them to pieces like pottery. The authority that he received from his Father is given to us who follow him. Now, I don't know about you, when you look at this language and the, the thought of dashing people you know, like pottery, I mean, maybe it's like, you know, okay, okay. And that does give us a moment to pause. Say, hey, I would rather see people come to Christ and find their hope, find their life in Him than to suffer that retribution, than to suffer that wrath. And that's right. While there's time, let's be His ambassadors. Let's bring that message to, to a world that needs Jesus so, so desperately. But let me tell you this also. Jesus has been very tolerant with a world that's been in rebellion against him. And even as he has come and revealed himself, is still in rebellion against him because people want to do their own thing. They want to be their own lords, their own saviors, rather than to put their confidence, their trust, and their allegiance in Christ. And when he comes, it will be right. It will be right. It will be fair. So when he comes, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Some willingly, some by force. And those who resist will, will receive wrath. Secondly, he says, I will also give that one the morning star. What does that mean? Multiple possibilities, and I'm not going to go through those here today. If you want that, you can come talk to me after the service. I'm going to tell you what I think it means. In quoting the conquering language of Psalm 2, 
I think it also moves on to connect with a prophecy from an unfaithful prophet named Balaam that we actually talked about last week. Who, While he was unfaithful, he did speak truly. And this is a passage we oftentimes equate with Christmas or the three wise men. This is out of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And he will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of the people of Shep. You see, Jesus was that foretold star out of Jacob who led some wise men from the east to find him. He is the scepter of Israel, of power. And he will rule the nations and crush those who continue to rebel. And again, the thought of the morning star. Revelation chapter 22. I, Jesus, chapter 16, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus, who is the true Son of God, who is that star of Jacob, the root and offspring of David, he says, I have given you myself. And within all that, all that that entails, which again will include reigning with him over the nations. I am that bright and morning star, so hold on to me. Hold on to me. Don't let go. Don't let go. Jesus, the true Son of God, He sees everything that's happening in this church. He comes dressed for business, feet of burnished bronze to bring retribution, Lord willing, leading to repentance. And if that's you or me, are we repenting? Are we turning back to him? Or are we continuing our rebellion like Jezebel? We need to take care that we do not tolerate false and unfaithful doctrine within this church. Lest it lead us astray from following him. That's the message here. Whoever has ears to hear, Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What He says to you. Amen and amen. Let me pray and then we'll have the worship team come and close us.